2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead today stocks are popping, bond yields are ripping higher. Is it the Fed, China, the spending framework Democrats reached an agreement on this morning? And most importantly, should investors chase this move or fade it? We're going to talk through all of it in just a moment with David Rosenberg. Plus, niche green flying machine and under-the-radar transportation play that Morgan Stanley says can rally nearly 50 percent. We have the name and the analyst behind the call. And the little engine that could DoorDash seeing a big jump this year. And it continues to make partnerships. In fact, it briefly surpassed Uber in market cap. Can they keep it up? But we begin with today's markets and Bob Bassani with a look at every angle of this rally down at the NYSE. Bob?
1: And you might be a little surprised that we have such a strong rally. A lot of people feel that Powell did another masterful job essentially of managing expectations, saying do not conflate tapering, which we're slowly moving towards with any imminent rate hike. He keeps pounding away, and the market seems to very much believe that. You can see that just with bank stocks. We're at a two-month high right now on the 10-year yield. Bank stocks have gone nowhere for the last six months, but they're having a nice little rally right now. Look at these big moves up. Rare to get... Big super regionals like Regions Financial, m and Bank, Huntington, move 5% in a day. Uh, but that's exactly what we're seeing. And again, the, these bank stocks haven't done much at all. Uh, and any prospects of higher rates, they tend to move to the other side. The other the upside. The other thing I want to emphasize is the energy stocks. There aren't many new highs, but we actually have new highs in energy stocks. Conoco is at a new 52 week high. Devon's at a 52 week high. One Oak, which is uh, one of the big uh, natural gas companies in the United States, that's a 52 week high. Cabot has been on fire. It was a $15 stock a few days ago. And I mean, in the beginning of September, it was $15. Oil and gas stocks do not move 30% in two weeks, but that's what's happened. It's been a remarkable rally here uh, for energy. Uh, Auto Stocks, another group I want to emphasize. Again, not many new highs. Every one of these are at new 52-week highs right now. AutoNation, Group One, O'Reilly, AutoZone, uh, even the rental car companies. Even Avis is at a new 52-week high. I know it sounds a little crazy, but it it is. Uh, I want to also emphasize very good earnings reports from some companies are really helping. Darden had terrific numbers, great business excellent same store sales. They did highlight some problems they're having with staffing is a serious problem. Uh, They're concerned about higher costs and passing that on. They want to find a way to keep costs down. They highlighted all the right issues, but look at that. That's a new historic high for Darden. Tonight, we'll get Nike. Nike's the perfect global company. They get 40% of their sales in the United States, but they're a very big global supply chain. They get about 40% of their sneakers manufactured in Vietnam. We'll hear about what issues there are for supply chains. They get 20% of their sales from China or so. They'll be able to describe if there's a slowdown there and what the business is. My point is... Nike is a really global company with a really global supply chain. And so that's the company you really want to hear from. But so far, we're getting great business from the companies that are reporting. Powell is reassuring people. And the Chinese are desperately trying to manage what's going on over at Evergrande. Kelly, back to you.
2: Bob, to kind of break it down as we move throughout the session today, you know, how big of a catalyst are these headlines in D.C., for instance? Are stocks and bonds rising together? Does one seem to be kind of pulling the other along for the ride? You know, I'm just curious, as you watch it play out internally, what you think is the main driver or sequence of events here?
1: The one thing totally ingrained in a stock trader's mental uh, uh, Rolodex is the historic killer of all bull markets. Is a sudden move by the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates. That is very well studied for a hundred years. So traders are fearful of any sudden move by the Federal Reserve. And so far Jay Powell has held everyone hand everybody's hands like their children and said, listen kids, let me explain something. Tapering is not rate hikes, please. And he keeps pounding away at that. And I think that is very reassuring, given that traders historically are, are primed to fear any kind of uh, imminent rate hike from the Federal Reserve. They're doing a great job managing it. And on the other thing, on Evergrande, I think the Chinese government is trying to figure out a way to quietly wind down the operation Mm -hmm. over there, just like they did with some of the big insurance companies. Remember some of these companies? They're they're gone now. The the people who ran them aren't even around. So I think they're probably trying to manage a quiet wind down over there. Heaven knows, we we learned from 2007, there are knock-on effects to... Uh, mortgages going bad uh, that are hard to control, we'll see if the Chinese can control that.
2: Yeah, we'll dig into that more in just a moment, Bob. We appreciate it. A great analysis. Our Bob Bassani down at the NYSE. Let's pick up on these bond moves I was just talking about and get out to Rick Santelli, who's at the CME with more. Rick, I, I suppose the sort of thing that I can't quite put, wrap my head around is that, like Bob said, you have stocks which are reassured by the Fed, but at the same time, bond yields are moving higher. You know, usually higher bond yields is because they're thinking, okay, Fed's going to move, but then stocks don't want the Fed to. You know, if you could just kind of bring this all together for me.
3: I think that's kind of easy from my perspective. (laughs) We've bought and paid for the rally in stocks and the ongoing news of more spending. And today, the agreement by uh, the congressional Democrats that they have a framework agreement on the Biden agenda all continues to fuel Uh, what's going on in equities. We talked about the the parking lot of liquidity in terms of the reverse repo market. This all fits in. But the issue now gets even a little bit more complicated when you add in what's going on with Europe, Bank of England. Okay, let's start at the beginning, Kelly. The charts say it all. Here's 10s and 30s, okay, starting this morning. And you can see that they were moving up, but right around 11 o'clock when Schumer and Pelosi had a quick press conference. It really started hitting the turbochargers. Now, we know Europe, I mean, Europe is just hot, hot, hot. But look at the boons in the gilts, the 10 year in Europe from that same time period. And you can see right around 11 o'clock Eastern, nothing really exciting happens there. They're just continuing to trend higher. So you can really isolate that part of it. Now, back to why Europe is so important. The guilts, should they close here, above 90 basis points, will be the highest yield close all the way to the spring of 2019. Now, if you look at tens and boons, they're both hovering at two-month highs, as Bob Fasani brought up, as you see on this chart. But now it really gets interesting. The 30-year bond was responsible for some unbelievable flattening, whether it was against the 10-year or against the 5-year over the last several-plus weeks. Well, 30-year bonds are still definitely not in the hunt on this one. Here's that same July 1st chart of bonds. They're going nowhere quickly, but they're starting to make up ground. So what you really want to pay attention to is if 30-year bonds get above 2%, that's significant. But long before that, it's a close in 10s. Any kind of a close with a 1-4 handle, anything above 1.39% is going to change the technicals rather dramatically. So I would pay very close attention to not only today's close, but the weekly close, which is a higher priority for technicals. And then add in hedge funds have been selling, trying to reverse longs. CTAs kicked in. There's some heavy institutional selling pushing these yields up. All
4: back right. to you rick
2: really appreciate it. sort of that breakdown of everything that's been pushing bond yields to potentially a breakout here so stocks are holding on to big gains on hopes that evergrand's debt crisis can be contained in china Investors are also digesting the Fed's move yesterday, like Bob was discussing, the signs of movement in D.C. towards an agreement on the big spending bill. But it's a really clear sailing from here. The Wall Street Journal this morning reporting Chinese authorities are asking local governments to prepare for a possible storm, indicating their reluctance to further bail out Evergrande. My next guest says this is what will shape global economies and markets. Joining me now is David Rosenberg. He's president, chief economist and strategist at Rosenberg Research. David, it's great to have you here. Um, Could you just first offer some observations about this rally uh, that's shaping up over the past, I guess you could say near 24 hours going back to the Fed, but maybe it's even before that going back to what looks like the Chinese dealing with the Evergrande issue?
5: Right, well, uh, you know, I don't think that you could really look at the stock market's uh, movement in the past couple of days without looking at it in the context of what happened earlier this week. Uh, it's clear to me that the vast majority uh, of this rally uh, is um, is a relief rally. Uh, it is based on uh, redressing the early week concern that uh, Evergrande was going to be a Lehman moment. Uh, I mean, you know as well as I do, almost everybody that came on CNBC that day was addressing whether this was going to be a Lehman moment. And we know now that it is not going to be a Lehman moment. Uh, there's a greater understanding as to uh, that this is all domestic debt, uh, the amount of uh, a foreign-held debt is is very low, and I think there's just more confidence now. And it, it could be tentative, but there's confidence now that uh, Beijing is going to uh, step in uh, and um, and and smooth uh, this uh, demise. Uh, or maybe even nationalize uh, Evergrande. So uh, the market's just done. What what can you say? It's just uh, been a roller coaster ride. But to me, this is largely based on Evergrande today.
2: But you're saying it's a relief rally about the direct knock-on effects. But do you still think it's an issue? You know, when I look at what you've been writing about, you're sort of warning people that it will slow China's economy. That is going to have kind of an indirect effect on growth. So what does that mean for stocks? And what does it mean for bond yields? Which, you know, like Rick was saying, their move has been possibly even more dramatic here.
5: Hmm. Yeah, well, look, uh, the reality here is that even before Evergrande was making the uh, front pages of the morning papers, uh, the Chinese economy was slowing down precipitously. Uh, I mean, between April and and, uh, August, retail sales in China are down 20% at an annual rate. Yeah, that's negative 20. Industrial production is negative 8%. Property sales, even before uh, this fiasco, we're down 20 percent. I actually think that uh, there's a very good chance that China is double dipping. Uh, you know, what's the net impact on the U.S. economy? Uh, you know, it's, it's not that big because the U.S. economy is, is, a, is a large, basically closed economy. And uh, as big as exports might be to China as a share to the economy, it's very small. So the direct impacts aren't that big. Uh, and we saw that, look, when we had the Asian crisis, which began really in July 1997, uh, I'm old enough to remember that, <laughs> um, you know, it didn't become a big problem until long-term capital about, uh, you know, well over a year later, it never had a direct impact on the economy, had an impact ultimately on the financial markets. So uh, the point I'm making here is the, the knock-on effect when you think about what where, where China is really important uh, from a macro standpoint, it consumes half of the world's basic materials. So To me, uh, this is a big question mark over the big reflation commodity trade. I I think a Chinese big slowdown recession is going to unwind that. And so that's where I think the big impact impact is going to be. Probably a bigger impact on places like Australia and Canada, South Africa, the commodity related currencies and countries than the U.S.
2: Absolutely on those uh, individual nations. But also there's been a a lot of people putting on the commodity trades, looking at the need that EVs are going to require for those supplies and so forth. And I think that uh, slowing China becomes a a real challenge to that story. So, you know, we've seen the slowdown that you're already describing. As you mentioned, you're concerned they could even double dip. Let's bring it back to the U.S., though. You know, yes, we understand that Chinese growth matters at the margin, but is that a reason not to own certain U.S. stocks that might have exposure there? Um, You know, I'm just curious, you know, even if it slows things down at the margin, is bad for commodities in certain countries, do we generally have to worry about it if you own, like, the S&P 500?
5: Well, I, I think for the S&P of hundred, there's segments that you have to worry about because these are mega caps with very large international exposures. So I would say you definitely want to screen uh, what you have in your portfolio uh, against sensitivity to the Chinese economy and then the knock on effects, you know, throughout the rest of Asia. Uh, it would tell me, but look what happened yesterday. The leader wasn't the S&P or the Dow. It was the Russell 2000, which finally had a good pop. Uh, so I think you'd want to see more domestically focused uh, if you're going to be you know, uh, constructing an equity portfolio with concerns about China, either double dipping or the, the severe slowdown that's underway, that's going to continue. We have to make this point, make it emphatically, uh, Kelly, that, that real estate in China is 29% of their GDP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the U.S. at the bubble peak back in 2006, uh, our our, our our, our real estate share GDP was six percent, got down to three. Can you imagine what would happen to the Chinese economy under the same circumstance where their real estate share of GDP gets cut in half from this level? That A recession will be unavoidable uh, unless, of course, you know, the Chinese authorities, it is a command economy. They're sure. moving further back towards a command economy. Um, but what I'm saying is that there's going to be uh, reverberations. And, and I would say that, yeah, multinational stocks with Asian exposure, or I'd say Chinese exposure are ones you want to be very careful about.
2: Well, it echoes what Nancy Tangler told us about how they're screening for less than 10 percent uh, revenue exposure to China as well. Dave, a really good breakdown of everything. We appreciate you being here. Thank you. David Rosenberg with Rosenberg Research. Want to give you a quick check on shares of Twitter right now, which are popping on news that they're streaming up with Strikes Lightning Wallet to integrate Bitcoin into the tips feature that allows users to pay their favorite creators. Twitter shares are up around two and a half percent on the session right now. And Strike CEO Jack Mallers will join us next hour on Power Lunch to talk about this new partnership, perhaps offer his thoughts on Robinhood's crypto wallet uh, and other news of late. Be sure to stick around for that. Coming up on the exchange, there's a big green energy push in DC, but some clean energy stocks aren't seeing great gains this year. In fact, they aren't seeing gains at all. Shares of fuel cell energy are down 38%. The CEO will join us to talk about the viability of fuel cell power now that solar and wind have become much less expensive. Also, take a look at the Dow 30 heat map. We're just slightly off session highs, but all 30 members are moving higher, led by Salesforce. Financial's not far behind with bond yields on the move. We're back in a moment.
0: Including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to "You Might Be Right," a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
5: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over fourteen hundred investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration.
2: back, everybody. The push for green energy continues across the globe. But if there's one thing that's becoming clear, it's that not all areas of energy are being embraced by investors. Solar stocks have been a pretty bright spot. The Invesco solar ETF is up nearly 300 percent in the past three years. A little bit more mixed with wind, with names like Eversource and public service, up double digits during that time. And one of the worst performers is hydrogen fuel cell technology. Names like Bloom Energy and Fuel Cell, which recently saw big run-ups ahead of the infrastructure bill, but have sold off since then, Will the push for carbon capture and the attention on recent power failures in parts of this country start to change that? Christina Evelis joins us with the CEO of FuelCell. Christina, for a look at what's ahead.
7: Yeah, and then that's why we're going to introduce Jason Few right now, who is the CEO. And Jason, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Before I get into the question, we often talk about solar, batteries, hydrogen, but I want to go back to the basics first. When distinguishing between both energies, batteries deliver energy that they previously stored, while fuel cell energy converts energy from fuel to electricity, so think hydrogen. But since the early 2000s, this is where the question's coming in, we've been promised this hydrogen highway, and yet the technology still isn't everywhere, even though I know you work with utility companies. So, Jason, why is it taking so long? Is it because it's so expensive?
8: So Christina and Kelly, thank you for having me today. Uh, We're really excited about this energy transition and what's happening in the hydrogen uh, economy and our opportunity to help accelerate that development. Let me just give you one example. Today, we're building a project in partnership with Toyota at the Port of Long Beach in California, and we're using our TriGen platform. And that platform will deliver three values to Toyota. First, it will deliver all of the power that they need at the port of Long Beach. So they won't be reliant on, an, a, on a grid that's not very reliable. Secondly, it will produce 1,200 kilograms of hydrogen a day. That hydrogen will be used for the Toyota Mirai, which is their passenger vehicle, and also a Class 8 jointly developed truck that Toyota has built for, as, to use as their dryage, vehicle, be a dryage truck on the port. But the third benefit that it will provide, and this is unique to our capabilities, it will also produce fresh water, and that water will be used by Toyota to drive a car washing operation on the port, so they won't have to use water as a natural resource, especially in same, you know when you look at the port of Long Beach right now, where it's actually in a uh, severe drought condition. So that's an example of delivering distributed hydrogen using fuel, renewable natural gas, to deliver green hydrogen in a transportation application. And doing something that no other platform that we're aware of in the world can do, and that's also provide fresh water.
7: So you, you just brought up the auto sector, but if I were to talk about oil and gas, because everybody right now is promising to, to become net zero, companies, countries all acro- across the globe, and often that's done with capturing carbon, carbon and storing it into the ground. You, your company, has been working with ExxonMobil for, for many, many years right now, but there was a study that came out from Cornell and Stanford just in August saying that this hydrogen that's captured in the ground, blue hydrogen, actually isn't as clean as we are led to believe. So what do you say to that?
8: Well, look, I, I think we have a very different view on that, and our technology is unique in that we're the only known technology in the world that has the ability to capture carbon from an external source and produce more power at the same time. Every other carbon capture technology requires significant power in order to run those technologies. We're completely the opposite of that. The second benefit that, that we have in terms of our ability and our carbonate fuel cell technology is to actually capture the carbon in applications where we're producing hydrogen. And and that results in what's considered blue hydrogen. We believe that blue hydrogen has a significant opportunity to play a major role as an energy fuel, not only in the US, but in markets around the world. And we, our view of that is that that is absolutely clean, low carbon to no carbon power. And we think blue hydrogen will be a factor.
2: Jason, it's Kelly here. And I wonder, as these uh, technologies mature, and again, this, the cost of solar and wind drops, but they don't solve that clean, firm power uh, problem that a lot of people are looking to nuclear for. The last I saw, nuclear and uh, fuel cell had relatively similar uh, costs. Is, do you think that this could actually fill a niche that people are usually looking to nuclear to fill, granted on a much different scale?
9: Look,
8: we believe as a company that there's going to be continued adoption of intermittent technologies like wind and solar, but they are intermittent. And you need a way to firm up the capacity of those platforms. We think the answer to that is hydrogen, because you can store hydrogen in almost endless capacity. And with our platforms, we have the ability to use that excess electricity, convert it to hydrogen, store that hydrogen through something that's called electrolysis. And then reverse that hydrogen and produce zero carbon power. And we think that our platform is the way in which grids around the world can continue to adopt intermittent technologies because you have to have a way to have baseload continuous power. And that's what our company does. And we believe that baseload will continue to be important. We don't think that you can run the energy infrastructure around the world on intermittent technologies.
2: No, we're seeing that more than ever these days. So, again, there might be, you know, you can see the evolution here where there will be a spot for technologies like fuel cell uh, to fill this gap, especially as more and more of them emerge. Jason, thanks for your time today. It's good to have you here.
8: Christina and Kelly, thank you very much, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about our company. Thank you.
2: Christina Parts, we appreciate it, uh, all of the reporting you've been doing on this. Coming up, in case you missed it, DoorDash's market cap briefly surpassed Uber's earlier this month. We'll explore how Dash has staked its claim as a major delivery player, and take a look at the biggest winners over in the NASDAQ today. Moderna, Marriott, Activision, quite the grab bag, all up 3 to 4%. We're back in a moment. Is
0: America's primary system working?
2: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets right now are close to session highs. Dow's up 580 points. And we've seen bond yields moving higher today as well. So 1.7% gain for the Dow, which is outpacing the other major averages. NASDAQ up 1.1%. You heard Dave Rosenberg highlighting the movement in the Russells too the last few days. So maybe a bit of a rotation going on here. In terms of the movers This hour, investors are looking for the fun and games. We've got casinos, amusement parks, and movie theaters all moving higher. Yes, these are reopening plays as well. So a consistent theme. Las Vegas Sands up 4%, MGM up 4.5%. We know as well the casino names have seen some headwinds with these Chinese issues in Macau. But Dave & Buster's Ticker Fun up 4.5%, IMAX up 6%, Cinemark rallying as well. Let's also take a look at shares of Remitly Global, a fintech company soaring in its trading debut, giving it a $7 billion valuation, the IPO priced at $43 above. Above its range. It's trading at 46 and change right now. And the apparel names are getting a nice bump today. Gap, American Eagle, Urban Outfitters, and Levi, all among the outperformers. American Eagle is up nearly 6 percent. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel.
10: Hi, Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour. Search crews are back in a Florida nature reserve looking for Brian Laundry. Police and the FBI have been searching the reserve's 25,000 acres. Laundry, who has not been seen since September 14th, is still considered a person of interest and in the death of his girlfriend, Gabby Petito. The White House says that fewer than 5,000 migrants remain in the Del Rio, Texas border area, and more than 1,400 Haitian nationals have been returned to Haiti with more scheduled. The White House also saying that horses will no longer be used around Del Rio following outrage over scenes like this and the use of Border Patrol agents on horses to aggressively confront migrants. And on the news, a rare look at police intervention training when officers witness colleagues using excessive force or unsafe tactics. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And in Afghanistan, a founder of the Taliban says that it will once again carry out punishments like executions and the amputation of hands. He says that laws will be based on the Quran.
2: You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Well, thank you very much. Streaming success, DoorDash goes to the bar and one charger to rule them all. Those stories all coming up in Rapid Fire in just a moment here on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple other stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire, and today we're tackling all things tech. Here to help me break down the headlines: CNBC.com technology editor Steve Kovac, Chantico Global CEO Gina Sanchez, and the Verge editor-in-chief Neelai Patel. Gina and Neilai are both CNBC contributors. Welcome. First up, the streaming wars are going global today. Guggenheim is bullish on Roku as it expands a new platform in Canada and adding uh, to its plans to launch in Germany later this year. Guggenheim upping its buy rating to a buy with a 3.95 price target. It's a 3.36 right now. Meanwhile, Macquarie is reiterating its outperforming Disney, despite the company saying Disney Plus will see lower than expected sub ads in the fourth quarter. In a note, Macquarie says it expects Disney Plus to keep growing internationally, especially off the success of its superhero film, Shang-Chi. Nilai, tell me your thoughts on streaming going global. I feel like every time people say this, they don't really mean it. And all that really matters is uh, U.S. ads.
9: Yeah, I think that's the number that everyone looks at. It's the number that's closest to home. I think fundamentally the story of streaming is what layer of distribution you get to own. That's why Roku expanding into more countries is a really significant move. They are the final layer of distribution for most people in their homes. And connected TVs in particular sit on your wall or on your uh, TV console for a long time. That is an entrenched position to be in once, once Roku gets a device in your home. And it also means they get to take a piece Of every piece of advertising that goes across their platform, that's their business. Really strong position for them to be in. Flip side, Disney, uh, yep, they're growing internationally, but unless they add more content faster, they're going to see that rate of growth slow, and they're not able to attract more distributors. They've integrated distribution. So Mm -hmm. and minus of controlling distribution and streaming.
2: Gina, where would you be on the stocks? Roku, Disney, what would your streaming uh, plays be here?
4: So, look, I think international numbers matter when you completely saturated the US market. That's what happened with Netflix. And Disney still has a long way to go to continue to saturate. You know, they came out hard out of the gate and they still have a lot more subscribers to get to their, you know, 250 ish million uh, goal of subscribers. So, You know, I think that that the international numbers right now are probably not gonna matter that much to Disney. For Roku, on the other hand, it does matter. And I agree that it is an entrenched position where they're taking a piece of every action. So I think that that is actually quite a valuable uh, strategy.
2: Steve, I'll give you a quick final comment. Yeah,
11: um, I can't help thinking about Amazon. I think this report sleeps a little bit on Amazon's ambitions here. They just put out a TV last week. They have the uh, Thursday night football deal. And it's a huge shopping platform, so smart shopping on your television, integrated with Amazon. That's something to watch as well on top of the ad business Neelai was talking about.
2: All right, fair enough. Let's check on the Dow as we talk about uh, what's going on with DoorDash here. We're moving to session highs with a Dow of 500 And uh, 95 points, almost 600 points at this hour. You can see that intraday chart where we just uh, keep seeing strength, keep seeing some of these names climb. Interestingly enough, one of the best pandemic plays, DoorDash, is still doing quite well in today's environment. It's quietly becoming a force yesterday, announcing a partnership with Bed, Bath & Beyond, just days after starting alcohol delivery in 20 states. DoorDash, guys, made 57 percent of all U.S. meal deliveries last month, more than double Uber Eats' share, uh, shares have been doing quite well. They're up 50% this year, while Uber's down 10%, and Just Eat Takeaway is down 30%. So, Nilay, are you surprised at the, it, how well DoorDash is doing? I, I'm surprised at how well the stock is doing, especially at a time when investors are punishing FedEx, for instance. Their, DoorDash is just another delivery company.
9: It's not a delivery company, but it's it's one of the, the brand worth consumers. I love the quote from the CEO the other day that alcohol is a win-win-win for everyone. Uh, it's just a, an all-time... Great market expansion. <laughs> quote: I will say the challenge for DoorDash is delivery workers. Uh, New York City is regulating how delivery workers are going to get paid and how they get treated. The you know the cover of New York Magazine a couple of weeks ago uh, was a collaboration with The Verge on the lives of delivery workers in New York City. People are starting to pay attention to where the margin really is for these companies, and as regulation hits those zones, I think DoorDash is in a challenging position. But people like getting stuff delivered, and that's always going to be. Cool.
2: Gina, I'll give you Uber, I'll give you DoorDash, and I'm going to keep insisting that FedEx be thrown in there. What, what, as an investor? Which one do you like? But I like
4: FedEx of those three, without a doubt. I think Uber and DoorDash actually face that gig worker issue, and you know the margins are extraordinarily thin. Uber, you know, was losing money on every single piece of volume, and. Uh, you know, DoorDash isn't exactly uh, swimming in margins either, and so the regulation on gig workers is important. And the valuation does not reflect that risk. Steve.
2: Yeah,
11: I think it's just amazing how close in market cap DoorDash and Uber are all of a sudden. If you remember, for the last decade, the whole story around Uber was it's going to be this uh, the Amazon of logistics. And yeah. it turns out DoorDash could just swoop in and become as big as it is. Uh, that's pretty impressive. And it it's not a good look for Uber, to be honest.
2: And if I could quote Steve Kovac from the last uh, segment, you know, don't sleep on Amazon because it itself, you know, has huge last mile ca- capacities here. And we all we know that they're never one to stand by and let a market opportunity pass. Uh, but before we go, I do and want to quickly... And they're just adding
11: make- more cities to Amazon same day, too. To, there you to, go. They just announced that today.
2: Exactly. It, they're yeah. all going to be coming head to head. All right. Finally, the EU is proposing some legislation that would require companies to equip their electronic devices with standard USB-C chargers. I love this because it's so EU. It aims to cut waste and make life easier for consumers. But Apple has long opposed this move, most of its devices feature these lightning connectors. Apple released a statement saying, in part, we remain concerned that strict regulation mandating just one type of connector stifles innovation rather than encourages it, which in turn will harm consumers in Europe and around the world. Gina, <laughs> I mean, it, it is very frustrating to have to constantly update your little cords. And you ever, we all have cables all over the place. Does the EU have it right here or will this really stifle right. innovation?
4: I, I side with the EU on this one. I think it is just such a pain to have to re and I travel so much, you know, mm-hmm. and every time I have to refresh my entire travel uh, uh, a bag of cords is ridiculous. I think the EU has it right. And Apple is just whining.
2: Steve, uh, we might now need more cords to travel if there's going to be one standard <laughs> in the EU. And then, you know, how is this going to play out?
11: That's right. Um, And it's just kind of interesting for all as anti-consumer as it might be not to for Apple not to include things like the wall plug with their iPhones anymore. It also feels a little weird for uh, the EU to legislate tech down to like what kind of ports can be on the phone at the same time. And I know Neela is going to back me up on this is it's very clear Apple is moving towards portless devices, meaning all wireless charging. So this might not even be an issue in two years if Apple actually has to face
2: that's it. That's a great point. Maybe that's the way out of this, Neli, because otherwise I'm expect California, Massachusetts are probably upset they didn't come up with this first.
9: <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's a perfect EU regulation. And it is the exact right move, right on the cusp of being totally irrelevant. Um, <laughs> and we'll see what Apple does. You know, I think their statement about innovation and connectors is hilarious. Apple is the company that pushed USB-C in the beginning. And it has been mostly a consumer disaster. USB-C is very confusing to use. Lots of different substandards of USB-C, all with the same connector. So if Apple can actually simplify it, I buy it. But they're kind of the ones that created this whole
2: mess to begin with. No, I, when you say USB C, I'm not even sure which one that is. I'm like, I think that's the narrower one, but then you know, I can't even keep up. I just carry the bundle exactly. of cords that's everywhere. The point. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna get right on the cusp of it going obsolete is the quote of the day. Steve Kovac, Gina Sanchez, and Nilay Patel, really appreciate your thoughts today for this edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up, it's the market that could be worth trillions that you've never heard of. Morgan Stanley calling one of the main players a niche green flying machine that could change the way people commute. We will reveal the name next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Morgan Stanley, as uh, actually I should quickly mention, as we're showing here, take a look across the markets as the Dow continues to climb towards session highs. We're up Just about 600 points on the nose, led by energy up 3.5% today, financials up nearly 3%, and industrials up 2% as well. The best performer is the Dow of the major three averages. Real estate, the only sector fractionally in the red. Kind of makes sense with rates on the move as well. Now, as I mentioned, Morgan Stanley is making a bold call on an under-the-radar aviation company, calling it a niche green flying machine and initiating coverage with an overweight rating. I'm talking about Joby Aviation. Its shares are up nearly 12% on this call. The company is working on an electric aircraft that lands and takes takes off vertically like a helicopter, which Morgan Stanley says could make it a big player in the urban air mobility space. Joining me now is the analyst behind this call, Christine Lewag. Christine, it's great to have you here. How close is this technology to prime time?
6: Uh, first commercial service will be in 2024, Kelly. So it's something that we could see in the next few years for sure.
2: When we say 2024, is that like a wink wink 2024? Or is that like a, you know, Look at what's happened with space this year, where all of a sudden we've got astronauts on these incredibly successful private missions.
6: I think you have to look at this market in terms of what could happen in the next five years, the next 10 years, and then what's 2040 and 2050. So to put into context of what the urban air mobility industry is about, our $9 trillion TAM in 2050 represents about 4 to 6 percent of GDP in that time frame. And aviation today is 4% of global GDP and the U.S. auto TAM is 16% of U.S. GDP. If urban air mobility disrupts the way we travel and these aircraft become more commonplace in 20 to 30 years, um, 5 to 6% of GDP is very reasonable for this disruptive industry. And Joby is the first one to come up with a commercial certifiable passenger aircraft with an electric vertical and takeoff landing capability. Are they the only one in this
2: space? And for investors who buy the name now, why do they need to own Joby here uh, as opposed to waiting a couple of years? You know, we've seen some high-profile stumbles with companies like Nikola. Is it better to wait until the technology is more proven and advanced?
6: There are many companies that are entering this space, and you're seeing them come up with SPACs. And with the pre-revenue aspect of these companies, there is a speculative nature of this. But what I like about Joby and why I do think they stand out versus competitors is they have a full-scale prototype that is flying. And the aircraft has flown over 1,000 times and has shown ability to hover, to transition from hover to cruise, and also land. And when you have a full-scale prototype and you're working on FAA certification, you're just that much closer to actually coming and having this to fruition. And also the military is using this technology. So this is not some far-off flying car-type concept, What these are are immediate replacement to some helicopter routes. So that's exactly what I was going to ask is, how do, where should we expect to first
2: see this technology utilized? Uh, military it would be one option that not only could serve a unique purpose, but investors always love if there's a government contractor because it's a pretty reliable revenue stream and a huge potential market. So that being one area, where else where helicopters are used? I would think of a lot of like local search and rescue, maybe even news functions and that kind of thing. And why couldn't drones uh, ultimately serve some of these
6: purposes? So, so Kelly, um, I guess there's a few things in your question And the first one is routes, right? Uh, And if this aircraft takes off and land like a helicopter and cruises like a fixed wing, one of the more immediate uh, benefits would be anywhere a helicopter could go in short distances because you're limited by range in terms of battery today. So short distances, you could see this going from city center to airports, city center to a popular commuter point, or even to local, local getaways. And helicopters serve this market today. You can pay $199 to go on Blade from Manhattan and JFK. And if the Joby aircraft will be safer because it's a fixed wing with vertical takeoff and landing capability versus a single point of failure where you have more common in helicopters, this could become more commonplace and you can see those be replaced uh, shortly. And for example, also for tourism, you see helicopters flying over Central Park. If you can have a safer aircraft to do that, why not? And also cheaper and more affordable. And that's where you can see that growth. Your second question is on uh, autonomous vehicles and drones. For regulation, the FAA is not there to allow for pilotless aircraft for Mm -hmm. passenger travel. So for this type of airplane, you do need a pilot first. And pilotless, I mean, that comes sometime in the future, but in the more immediate future, this could be a helicopter replacement market. And for Joby, you don't need the 2050 TAM to make the investment case today, because in 10 years, If they could be 20 percent of the U.S. helicopter market, the investment case is here for Joby at a $16 price target.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's always a lot more comfortable to say this is going to take over the helicopter market than to say, yes, we are going to have flying cars, just (laughs) just like we were promised.
6: Christine, thanks for that moniker. uh, I mean, Kelly, for that moniker, you know, flying cars, I think it's a little bit misleading because you're not taking a car from Fifth Avenue and then flying the same vehicle to the Hamptons. This is really more of a helicopter, heliport to heliport. Type operation. Right. In that sense, we have flying cars already. Christine, it's great to have you here. Thank you again.
2: Christine Leewag with Morgan Stanley today. Still had a lot of buzz surrounding the buy now, pay later space. We'll talk to Global Payments CEO Jeff Sloan about increased competition, their e commerce stake, and how the pandemic has impacted business. That's right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Global Payments has been enabling Buy Now, Pay Later for years, executing more than a billion and a half transactions annually. It's one of the world's largest payment companies, and it recently paired up with Amazon Web Services. And while the likes of Affirm and Klarna are the buzzy new kids on the block, is this technology about to become more ubiquitous? Joining me now is Jeff Sloan. He is the CEO of Global Payments. Jeff, it is great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So Buy Now, Pay Later has been around for a while?
12: Yeah, Kelly, that's right. So one of the things that's important to understand about global payments is we are the beneficiaries of innovation in the uh, ecosystem. So new payment types like QR code, safer commerce, contactless, and of course, installment payment plans, which are now really called buy now, pay later, have been a part of our ecosystem for many years, particularly outside of the United States in Asia Pacific and Latin America. So as you rightly said, today we enable at global payments more than one and a half billion buy now, pay later transactions each year, a lot of those are powered by virtual cards. Uh, and we issue more than 50 million virtual cards uh, per year today, spending more than $25 billion a year on those. So it's fantastic news for us. The more uh, things are digital, the more money we make.
2: Interesting. So I think as we mentioned, I think maybe the fourth largest uh, company in the global merchant acquirer and processing space. So your rivals would be Fiserv and FIS and Chase and you know these companies. And now, as I mentioned, there's a lot of uh, – Sort of a lot of market share being taken by startups like Square. Can Square ever become so big that they go after a Tiffany, a Louis Vuitton? The time, ty- the types of companies are they're more your bread and butter.
12: Yeah, I would say Kelly that our, our value proposition is along a few lines. The first thing is we're actually a top quartile software as a service cloud company, largely in AWS and Google today. The second thing is. We have one of the largest, if not the largest, e-com acquiring businesses in the world. Square's really heading in a different direction. They're really trying to be a digital bank um, and enable digital wallets for consumers. So I would say the pure merchant acquiring business at Square is probably 20 percent or less of their business, whereas for us it's really 100 percent digital payments. Um, for merchants, financial institutions, software partners, and tech companies is really 100% of what we do. So I think they're really headed in a slightly different direction. And to the extent that that um, uh, builds a bigger target addressable market for all of us in payments, the way our B2B acquisition recently did, I think that's nothing but good news for global payments.
2: And can you explain that? So when we start talking about B2B payments, you know, from one uh, business to another, as opposed to the consumer checkout experience we're more used to, whether in the physical store or online – who traditionally has been processing B2B payments, and what difference does it make this recent acquisition of yours uh, with regard to how that space continues to evolve?
12: Well, Kelly, you might be surprised to know that B2B payments is a $125 trillion, with a T, uh, dollar business today, but half of it, it uh, remains by, uh, by check. Hmm. So the answer to your question is almost nobody <laughs> is doing um, uh, payments, and in some cases, even ACH. It's mostly check on a business of that size. And that market is growing organically uh, double digits. So what we did with our announced acquisition, our investor conference a couple weeks ago with Mineraltree is really by the last remaining leg to the stool that we needed, which is to say cloud SaaS for accounts payable uh, automation, largely in AWS, uh, enables us out of the gates to have two thirds of a billion dollars of revenue uh, and be be, uh, be one of the biggest participants in the B2B marketplace really out of the gates.
2: Well, I do hope that you can bring it to scale uh, quickly, uh, you and and all others working in the space, because it is shocking sometimes how far uh, behind some of these companies still are, even with the way that they deal with customers, let alone with each other. Jeff, thanks for joining us to explain it today. We look forward to checking in with you soon. Thanks for having me. Jeff Sloan from Global Payments. Coming up, 73. That's the number of container ships currently anchored off the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach. And while those ships may be stranded, companies are turning to planes, trains, and automobiles to try and move supply. It's costing them big time, and we have those details ahead. Welcome back, everybody. While the record number of container ships sitting off the West Coast is not great for consumers seeking goods, it could be a boon for smaller freight names. Frank Holland is here with that story, and the stock's poised to benefit, Frank.
13: Hey there, Kelly. Uh, a record 71 container ships are off the coast of California, waiting to unload at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. It's a 31% increase from just back in early September. Companies are racing to get goods into stores. That's really led to a surge in container shipping. But as you can see, container shipping on rails, that's declined over the last two months. That's because the U.S. container shipping network is backed up. Bottleneck is just flat out maxed out. Now, companies are pushing your sneakers, your electronics, your furniture, all the things shipped in containers onto trucks now, really driving rates to new records 85% higher than September 2019. Demand 442% higher for general trucking. Many companies are also going to air shipping. Those rates... 275% 275% higher year over year, and with so much shifting in the supply chain and companies just trying to move goods however they can, more freight expected to be shifted. The truckers that carry goods from various companies in the same load, that's called LTL, those are companies like Old Dominion as well as to air freight carriers just to try to get things in a little bit faster. Freight brokerage and forwarding stocks also expected to see more demand. They arrange for freight to be shipped overseas or trucked domestically. C.H. Robinson, leading freight forwarder from Asia to the U.S., also has about 15 percent of the U.S. truck brokerage market. And here.
2: FedEx, you think, would be another beneficiary, Frank, but they're down about 10 percent year to date.
13: Yeah, just higher labor costs in general, Kelly, when you. When you look at their balance sheet, you see those costs, they really spiked, especially for its ground division that handles most of e commerce residentially.
2: Yeah, and the way that they're handling it versus all of these others that you mentioned, the stock's kind of all over the place, although generally uh, trending higher because of this demand and because of the higher uh, rates. Frank, thank you very much. We really appreciate it today. Frank Holland. That does it for the exchange, everybody. Thanks for joining us this hour. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time
8: Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.